Let's turn to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. We will read from verse 34 to the end of the chapter. Verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, who was a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, and saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he? They said unto him, The son of David. He said unto them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord? saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Neither dared any man that day ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Father, as we turn now to the reading of your word and instruction of your word. We thank you that your word was given to teach us and to correct us and to train us in righteousness. We thank you for all the words of your Lord, of our Lord Jesus that he spoke to us which are words of life. Help us to see hearing from you and not from man and open our understanding by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, Jesus has just silenced the Herodians and the Sadducees. The Herodians came to him with a question about taxes, as you remember, and they asked him, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Are we being disloyal to God if we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus answered brilliantly with, give unto Caesar, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and give to God the things that are God's. The Sadducees came with the question about resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. They thought they could stump Jesus and make him look bad with their uh, favorite question that they would ask the Pharisees with. And Jesus answered them by saying, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You're ignorant about the scriptures and you're ignorant about what God can do. You're assuming he can't change the order of things. And he shows them that in the, in the age to come there won't be any marriage because God is able to transform the order of things. And he shows them the scripture that says that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Everyone lives unto God. Therefore, there is resurrection. And he silences them. And now the Pharisees gather themselves together to take a stab at Jesus. They haven't learned the lesson that it's impossible to outwit wisdom. It's impossible to take down Leviathan. You can't do it. But yet they come together to either stump him and to try to destroy him through his words. And yet something interesting happens in verse 35 because it says, as the Pharisees are gathered together, and you can imagine they're huddling, trying to figure out what can we ask him, what can we do to stump him, what can we do to destroy him? One of them, a lawyer, it says in verse 35, asked Jesus a question. Now, if we compare the 
passage in Mark that deals with this exact same story, we learn something surprising about this lawyer. That his question is actually not a challenge to Jesus. And his question is actually not him trying to stump Jesus and destroy Jesus. It's actually a sincere question. And even though it says here in Matthew he was testing Jesus, the word test in the Greek doesn't necessarily have a bad sense to it. It can have a bad sense, but it can also have a good sense. It can also mean he just wants to know what Jesus has to say about the law. He's testing to see the quality of his answer. Not to stump him, not to destroy him, but to learn from him. Whether it's a good sense or a bad sense is determined by the context, and Mark provides us with that content, with that context. The man has a novel thought. Maybe he can learn something from Jesus. <laughs> see, it says in Mark that the, man was, the lawyer was impressed by Jesus' answer to the Sadducees. When the lawyer saw that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, he says, that was a really good answer. What do you think about this question? <laughs> he was impressed by Jesus. He asks Jesus the question about the law. In Mark, he actually responds to Jesus and says, Well said. And he says, I can see the wisdom in what you're saying. And Jesus responds to the man in Mark by saying, You are not far from the kingdom of heaven. This man is not trying to stump Jesus. This man is one of those Pharisees who actually isn't hard-hearted. And something is breaking through to this man as he's listening to Jesus and the words of Jesus and the wisdom of Jesus. And he thinks, wow, I want to ask Jesus a question about the law. And you know, not all Pharisees and not all religious people are hard-hearted. Okay? We don't want to get that impression that all religious people are hard-hearted and it's only the non-religious people who respond to Jesus. There are religious people who respond to Jesus too. You'll remember Nicodemus he was a Pharisee. He was in the Sanhedrin. And yet Nicodemus came to Jesus, of course, secretly. But he came to Jesus and inquired. And we see even at the end of Jesus' life, Nicodemus honoring Jesus by helping bury him. Did you know that in Luke chapter 13, verse 31, it says that some of the Pharisees came to Jesus and warned him and said, you better get out of here because Herod's going to kill you. Some of the Pharisees came to Jesus and were helping him. They didn't want him to die. And so not all Pharisees and not all religious people are hard-hearted. All can be saved. Whether you're irreligious, religious, we're all guilty of sin. And all one needs to do is acknowledge that and come to Jesus, believe the truth, and you can be saved. So there's hope for all. The man wants to know, verse 36, concerning the law, and he wants to know Jesus' take on the law. Now, like today and in the first century, this discussion, or this question, was actually common. It was a commonly discussed question. It was recognized by the lawyers, by the experts in the law, that there were some commands that were greater than others. This was recognized. And even Jesus shows us this. If you remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus even says that if you break even the least commandment and teach others to do, to do so that you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven, right? But if you teach men to obey even the least commandment, then you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So even Jesus recognizes that there are some commands that are least and there are some commandments that are greater. Or 
in common language, some are weightier than others. Some are lighter. They don't bear as much weight. So Jesus, in the next chapter we'll see, chapter 23, verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and you have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These you should have done and not leave the others undone. You see, even though Jesus here acknowledges their weightier matters in the law and there's greater commandments, just as the uh, scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers would have acknowledged, they still all acknowledge that you are obligated to obey all the law, even though there's ones that are greater than others. All of them are to be obeyed, as Jesus says here in verse 23. You admitted the weightier ones, you should have done them all. Now, in Jesus' day, some thought that washing your hands before you eat was one of the weightier matters of the law. I thought this was a weighty one. Tithing was a weighty one. That's up there, right? What you wear is a weighty one. There were some rabbis who would say, if you don't wear the proper clothes, you're damned. If you don't wear the, the proper vestments that God commands in the law, then you're guilty of everything and you're not going to make it. That's a weighty one. You've got to look different. And we think that's funny, but it's just like today. The way people... Religious people today act, you can get a picture for what they consider to be weighty. You can be a very kind man. You can be a very loving man. But if you aren't wearing the right clothes, if you aren't eating the right way, if you aren't going to the right places, man, this is a sinner, right? Watch out, right? And so even today, people make much of things that in the law, or Jesus would say, aren't that weighty. You should do them, but they're not as important as faith, Mercy and judgment. Some people today in uh, the Muslim religion, they also think in terms of sins and good deeds as being of having weight. And of course, the weightiest thing you can do in, in Islam is die in your struggle for God. In your struggle for God and His cause. And if you die, it doesn't matter what sins you've got, that one's so weighty that it just counterbalances everything else. You can be the worst sinner in the world, just die in in jihad and the cause for God and you're in. So even today you can see this idea of weightiness. Jesus said that your righteousness must be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Basically he's saying the Pharisees do little. You need to do more. You need to have something greater than what they have. We put the Pharisees in a scale. They're not very heavy. You need to be heavier. So Jesus is even thinking like this. The scribes were thinking like this. And so, this lawyer comes to Jesus and he says, tell me, because you're obviously wise as you're proving yourself here today. What is the greatest commandment in the law? What does it mean that your righteousness must be greater than the scribes and the Pharisees? What is greater? What is greatest? What do you think? If you were asked that question, you had no knowledge of Jesus' answer, what might you say? You shall have no other gods before me, perhaps. Thou shalt not covet. There's lots of commandments you could go through. Jesus gives us, in his answer, the most honored words in all of Scripture. The most honored words in all of Scripture, because here Jesus points to a Scripture and says, this is the greatest. This is the most important thing. And he says in verse 37, you shall love 
the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. By first, he doesn't mean the first in order because it wasn't the first one Moses said. But this is the first and most prominent commandment. This is the great commandment. And the second, he gives us a second one. He says there's another one that's just under it. To love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments. Hang all the law and the prophets. So in Jesus' answer, what's interesting is that the man asks for what's the greatest command, and Jesus essentially, in a few words, gives us all the commandments. I mean, he doesn't just say this one. He says this one, this one, and all of them hang on those ones. They're all here in my answer. But here's what's prominent. And what do these have in common, these two commandments that he gives that every one of them hang on? What's the, what's the thing that he points to? Love, right? Isn't it amazing that Jesus points his finger to love? Love is the greatest. Love is the weightiest. What did the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? If you don't have love, how much do you weigh in spiritual moral terms? Nothing. Nothing. You can give your body to be burned. You can give all your money away to the poor. You can have faith to move mountains. All those things seem pretty weighty. If you don't have love, they don't weigh anything. They don't weigh anything. Only love has weight with God. Isn't that amazing? And there's a few things to notice here about about Jesus pointing to this. First of all, Jesus is summarizing the law of Moses in these words. He's saying everything hangs on this. This is what the law of Moses is all about. Love. Love is an internal thing. Love is not an external thing. Love is not merely the things that you do. Love is the reason why you do them. There are many people who, today who think that the law of Moses was merely an external standard that men were supposed to follow, and as long as you followed it in an external way, Moses and God were happy, right? And they actually use that against Moses, and they say, the law of Moses, oh yeah, and they speak of it like it's some external, kind of nasty, let's, glad we're done with that kind of thing, right? I'm glad we don't have to keep the law of Moses anymore, because it just makes cold-hearted people, right? It doesn't require us to love. I don't know what Bible they're reading. Jesus points to Deuteronomy and Leviticus and says, this is what it's all about. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else has to do with this. This is what the law is. The Apostle Paul in Romans 13 says the same thing. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is what the whole thing is all about. There's nothing external about the law of Moses. And anyone who thinks so is is greatly mistaken. When you start thinking that way, then you think, you know what? The law of Moses was sort of like kindergarten. Uh, But Jesus comes along and says, now we're done with the law of Moses and we're not justified by the law of Moses because the law of Moses isn't about love. The law of Moses is just about tithing and those kind of things. And Jesus came and brought us the higher law. He brought us the law of love. This is what Christianity is all about. Right? How many of you have heard that before? Christianity is all about love. Keeping the commandments of love. Doing it from the heart. Heart religion. That's what Jesus is all about. But that's not what Moses was all about. Anyone who thinks that way is is wrong. And they'll never understand the gospel if they think that way. Until you understand the law for what it is, and until you understand that the law requires you to love, 
and there's nothing external about it. And according to the law of Moses, if you don't love, but you were to do all the things without love, you wouldn't be obedient. You can never know that you're a guilty sinner and that Jesus didn't come to bring you a higher law. Jesus came to save you from your sins. So the first thing to notice here is that Jesus summarizes the law of Moses with love. The second thing to notice is that this is the law. This is what you have to do if you're going to be right with God by law. If you think that in order to be saved or in order to go to heaven, you have to be good, you have to keep commandments, you have to do the right thing, you have to obey God, here it is. Jesus is telling you what you need to do. Now this truth in Deuteronomy that you must love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength doesn't just appear once in Deuteronomy. It appears two other times. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10. And look at verse 12. Deuteronomy 10 verse 12. It couldn't be more clear. Now, the religions of the world who don't believe in grace and who believe in obedience to the commands, these are the verses they should be shown. Because they, they say we need to obey. Okay, okay. Well, let's look at what you need to obey. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 12 says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Good question. Okay, what does he require? Here it is. To fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him and serve the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command this day for your good. There it is. So in Deuteronomy 10, 12, he says, this is what God requires. You want to be right with God through obeying him? Think you need to keep the commandments? Is that on your list of dues? Here it is. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That's the requirement. Turn to chapter 30, verse 6. Moses says it again. Chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. Now, if you don't do this, what won't happen? You won't live. What's the opposite of living? You're going to die. You want to live? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. So you want to be acceptable before God by what you do? Here it is. Jesus is pointing. Let's go back to Matthew 22. The third thing to notice about these verses, and perhaps the most important, that the emphasis in these two verses that Jesus quotes You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The emphasis, the point, the focus of these verses is how you love. You shall love the Lord your God. That's not the point of the verse. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. 
with all your soul, with all your mind. The point of the verse is how you love him, how he requires you to love him. And your neighbor, it's not just love your neighbor. It tells you what that means. It tells you what that looks like, and that's the point. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. As you love yourself, that's what is required. With all your heart, soul, and mind. Now, we're not supposed to divide those things and dive into them and say, what does it mean to love him with all your heart? What does it mean to love him with all your soul and your mind? The point is that this is communicating a total thing. Every part of you, every faculty that you have, everything that is within you, in an undivided way, you are to love God. That's how he's requiring you to love him. And if you haven't loved him in that way, then you haven't loved him in the way that he requires. John Gill writes, God is to be loved in the strongest manner we are capable of, and with all we have and are, always, at all times, under all dispensations of his providence, and upon all accounts, God is to be loved in the strongest manner we are capable of. And if you don't love God in that way, then you haven't fulfilled the command. You haven't obeyed him and his law. It's the same with your neighbor. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. The underline should be under as you love yourself. That's the most important part of the verse. Because people read these verses, right? They say, just love your neighbor. They don't meditate on how God is telling you to love your neighbor. As you love yourself. You see, we don't live in a world alone with God. Life is not to be lived just between you and God. You live in a world with other people who are exactly like you. No difference. Just as valuable, just as important to God, and they're just as concerned about themselves as you are concerned about yourself. And you're to love them and be concerned about them just like you love yourself and are concerned about yourself. Sometimes people point to this verse and they say, see, you've got to love yourself. That's what this verse is all about. No, that's not what this verse is all about. It's assumed that you love yourself. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29, Paul says, no one ever hated himself, but he always cherishes and nourishes himself. No one hates himself. That's assumed. But you hate your neighbor. You don't nourish and cherish your neighbor. And that's what God requires. That you love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love other people the exact same way you love yourself. If you're ever curious, well, what does it mean to love my neighbor? Just Love them just like you love yourself. You know how to love yourself. You know how it works. You know how you care about yourself, concerned about yourself, look out for yourself, want yourself to be first. Do that for others. And if you're wondering who your neighbor is, as someone asked Jesus once, Jesus told them, your neighbor is also your enemy. Your neighbor is the stranger. Your neighbor is everyone. That's the world that God wants to see with the law. Everyone loving each other just like they love themselves. The problem is people read this ambiguously and they say things like, you know, all this world needs is love. We just need to love each other. They say it so ambiguously. Notice that people don't say, you know, we just need to love each other as we love ourselves. They don't say that. Just like we care about ourselves, we just need to care about everybody. They don't say that. Love is always ambiguous. We need to have nice feelings towards each other, do nice deeds here and there, sing kumbaya, and just not kill each other, you know? (laughs) 
and send flowers every, every now and again. But they don't say, we need to love each other in a total, complete, all or nothing kind of way. Because we would know that we wouldn't do it. You'd be a hypocrite for suggesting that. Or for even pretending that you'd do it. And yet the thing that kills us, brothers and sisters, is that there's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't. Can you think of one reason at all why you shouldn't care about your neighbor like you care about yourself? Think about the person sitting next to you right now. Just immediately next to you. Is there any reason at all that you shouldn't care about that person like you care about yourself? Is there any reason at all? Are they different than you? You might think, yeah, well, it's me. (laughs) i got to care about me because it's me. Well, they're thinking the same thing. You're just as important, just as valuable, just as needy as they are. And yet, and we recognize the goodness of when you care for someone like yourself because every now and again we hear stories of someone who we would say goes beyond the call of duty, which it true, truly isn't going beyond the call of duty. And they, they give their lives for others. Not perfectly like the law says, but they give their lives for others. They serve others. And most people would say, oh, we're not, we don't have to do that. But yet when we see them do it, we say, man, they're really good, right? We think we don't have to be like Mother Teresa, let's say. We don't have to. She's gone beyond the call of duty. But how come then we say, wow, she's really good. And everyone recognizes this is a good person. Well, if she's a good person, shouldn't we be good? Doesn't God call us to be good? Love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself. And if you don't, then you do not fulfill the law. There's nothing ambiguous about the way God tells us to love. Jesus tells us that everything hangs on this. All the commandments, all the law, and all the prophets hang on love. Just like a key rack on a wall. Put your keys on it so you don't lose them. They couldn't stand if there wasn't that rack. All the commandments, hang on those, have to do with that. If you don't love, then you're not obedient to any commandments. There is no such thing as external, outward obedience only. Everything must be done by love, or it isn't done at all. So Jesus is not doing away with the other commandments. He's not saying, you know what, forget all the other commandments, just do these two. He's giving us a context to understand the meaning of all the other commandments. All the other commandments have to do with love. Why do you return your enemies? Ox, if it wanders off, because you love your enemy. Why do you not covet? Why do you not commit adultery? Why do you not kill? Why do you not steal? Because you love your neighbor as you love yourself. And without love, there is no obedience. J.C. Ryle says, No one works so well as they who work for love. The fear of punishment or the desire of reward are principles of far less power, they do the will of God best who do it from the heart. And so here we have, brothers and sisters, the law described to us in all of its glorious beauty, and we all would recognize this is a beautiful thing, right? Is there anyone here who thinks that love is not a beautiful thing? We all know it. We all admit it. And we all know the world would be an awesome place if we had love for one another. So if we all know that, Why don't we do it? Even we who preach it. It's the absence of love that creates the horrible conditions that we so often live in. So why don't we obey? Why don't we love our neighbor and our God 
in a total undivided way? And the simple answer is that we simply don't love God and our neighbor in a simple undivided way. We don't love our neighbor and we don't love God. Because the law was given to show us that. Here's the beautiful standard. Elliot, keep it. You don't. Why not? You don't love God or your neighbor. Who do you love? Who do I love? And you come to the rude awakening at some point in your life that you really only ever loved yourself. You realize that. The only person I've really ever actually loved is myself. In a total undivided way, which is what God requires. And the law shows us, by showing us what beauty is, it shows us our ugliness. The law shows us what showing us, by showing us what the standard is and what obedience is, it shows us our disobedience. It shows us our sin. It shows us our selfishness. It demands us to obey. It's not asking your neighbor to obey, it's telling you to obey. It's not telling God to help you obey, it's telling you to obey. And it shows us that apart from God, we're sinners. Disobedient. And we deserve to be cut off. And we deserve death. Because we don't love the way we know we should. And we don't belong in God's world. So the question is, is that the end of the story? And is that where God is that where the Bible leaves us with this beautiful verse? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength in your neighbors yourself. Is the, is the whole point of these verses just for us to read this and say, wow, that's beautiful and I'm not, and that's the end? Does the Bible take us to this beautiful place where we say, wow, what a wonderful thing that is, and then just leaves us in the dust? And the answer is no, because this is not the last, this is not the last of these verses that we'll see. The Old Covenant, brothers and sisters, leaves us there. The Old Covenant takes us to this beautiful place and says, see, you're not that. And it doesn't help us get there and it doesn't take us beyond that, that just seeing the beauty of this place. It's the New Covenant that takes us there. Because what does God say in the New Covenant? Jeremiah 31, 33. But that he'll take his law, and what is his law as we just learned? Love for God in a total, undivided way and love for our neighbor. And he'll take his law and he'll put it in our hearts. He'll put his law into our hearts. And the new covenant is different than the old covenant in this. That the old covenant, it makes love a requirement. Love is what is required of you in order for you to live. And if you don't love, you're dead. And the law requires you to love. No one's going to help you. No one's going to do it for you. You think you have strength. You do it. The The old covenant leaves us there with love as a requirement. But the new covenant changes everything because it hinges not upon a requirement, but, a, but upon the forgiveness of sins in the blood of Christ. Because Christ said when, when he died, he interpreted his death as the blood of the new covenant that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And the new covenant says that it's through the forgiveness of sins. It's through us having no condemnation. It's through us being freed from our sins and our guilt and the wrath of God and from all requirements that we come to have the law written on our hearts. Love is not a requirement that we need to fulfill to live. Love is now a response that we have to seeing the gift of life that God has freely given to us in Jesus.
The difference between a requirement and a response. The law exposes us to be sinners and the gospel exhilarates us to love each other. One exposes sin in us and one enables us to overcome our sin in response to God's forgiveness. You have to see the gospel. Do you, do you believe that even though you're an unloving, selfish wretch, disobedient to God, who knows the good and doesn't do it, pretends he's good, enemy of God, do you believe that God loves you? Totally. In an undivided way. Do you believe that God loves you and that God sent his son to save you, a wretch, not because you deserve it, but because he cares for you and because he doesn't want you to perish. And he saved you, not only from his wrath, but from all requirements. The gospel is a declaration of freedom. You stand free. You don't have to do anything. It's a gift. Yes, for you a sinner. And for me a sinner. Even though we don't deserve it. And through the gospel we come to see God's love. And what do we do? We fall in love with God. You love God. Because he first loved you. How can you not We sang a few weeks ago, who could not love you, loving us so dearly? We also come to value our neighbor and sympathize with our neighbor because we don't have to look at our neighbor anymore in a way that, in a way through the law where we just look at this person and and treat them the way that they deserve. We value them. God sent his son to die on the cross for the neighbor sitting next to you, the person you were contemplating earlier. Jesus died for them. God shows their value and God shows that he loves them. And you can also sympathize with them. You're a wretched sinner too. And you're forgiven. And they are too if they have believed in Christ. Or they can be too if they believe in Christ. So it's through the gospel that we come to love God and we come to our neighbor. Not as a requirement, but as a response. And brothers and sisters, without the gospel, how can we love each other? How can we love each other and love God without the gospel. How does the world without God and the gospel of Christ enable us to love each other? Does, does the teaching of evolution help us love each other? You know what? The person sitting next to you has as much value as a mouse. And maybe not even that if they hurt your feelings. Modern man in seeking autonomy from God and in seeking to understand the world apart from God and the gospel of Christ devalues man. And we wonder why we have these horrendous stories in the news of people killing kids and doing horrible things to each other. It's because there's an absence of love and there's an absence of love because there's an absence of knowing God and there's an absence of loving God as a response to Him loving you. There's an absence of seeing the value of your neighbor because there's an absence of seeing Christ shed his blood for your neighbor. And laws and rules don't make love. You can scold people. You can say, we're going to take away, we're going to throw you in jail if you hurt people. We're going to throw you in jail if you buy guns. We're going to throw you in jail if you you break the rules, break the laws. We're going to cold shoulder you at church if you break the laws. This is not going to produce a loving world. This is not going to make people actually care for each other. 
Only the gospel does that. And so we see how the gospel and the law are related because it's through the gospel that the essence of the law that is love actually comes into our hearts. Do you want to see love in your world? Do you want to see love in your home? What's the, what's the key? The key to having love in your home is to preach the gospel in your home. The key to having love in the world is to preach the gospel in the world. To tell people of the love that God has for us. To remind one another, Christians, of the love that God has for us. And to make men love God by showing them God. By telling them who God is. And this isn't some abstract, idealistic thing, but a concrete truth that God loves you. And it's tried, tested, and true that when you know that God loves you, you are filled with love for Him and for one another. Have you ever experienced that before? Tried and true. I hope you realize these aren't just idealistic things. These aren't just words that are nice. But if you truly know God and remember Him and think on Him and grasp His love, you can experience the love of God in your heart. It's amazing in Mark that the lawyer responds to Jesus by saying, Master, you have well said, for love is the essence of the law and everything is subservient to love. It's above all things. And it says this, that when Jesus saw that the man answered wisely, Jesus said something to him. But it was only after Jesus saw that he answered wisely Jesus said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. It's an amazing thing. Jesus is showing us that in order for you to enter the kingdom, you have to have an understanding of love. You have to realize that that's what the law is all about. You have to realize that love is the weightiest thing. And without love, there is no weight. You must have an understanding of this in order to be saved. Because once you see that the law is about love, then you'll see your sin. Then you're ready to see the manifestation of God's love for you as a sinner at the cross, then you're ready to understand and embrace the new covenant and enter the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus as a gift. There must be an understanding to be saved. So we've seen Jesus answer three questions. Each question, he's given us a brilliant and most helpful answer that has blessed the church down through the ages. Even the stupid hypocritical questions that were asked to them, he turned them for good and he gave, he gave us untold good in his answers. The most useful lessons. Jesus has shown us how to live as Christians in the world politically by telling us to give unto Caesar what Caesar's and to give unto God what is God's. He's taught us how to think about the world and God's power by showing us that God can change the moral order of things, and that all error has to do with not knowing the Scripture and the power of God. He's also shown us the key to understanding the moral world. Love. And then Jesus, in verse 41 and 42, as the Pharisees are trying to figure out what to ask him next, he initiates and asks them a question. And the interesting thing about this question is that at first glance, it seems like it would land him in trouble. They're trying to catch Jesus in his words. They're trying to destroy Jesus. And his question seems to invite trouble. Whose son son is the the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, David's. Well, if he's David's, then what about this? Wait, are you suggesting the Messiah is not the son of David? Heretic! He's inviting problems. 
A strange question indeed in this particular circumstance. Why does Jesus ask it? I quote to you the words of Frederick Louis Gaudet, who I think nails the issue on the head. Jesus was not ignorant what the charge would be which they would use against him. He would be condemned as a blasphemer, and that for having called himself the Son of God. And as he was not ignorant that before such a tribunal it would be impossible for him to plead his cause in peace, he demonstrates beforehand in the presence of all the people and by the Old Testament the divinity of the Messiah, thus sweeping away from the Old Testament standpoint the accusation of blasphemy which was to form the pretext for his condemnation. See, they hated Jesus because of his preaching, but they needed some reason to condemn him. And finally, we know that they condemn him by saying, this guy is blasphemer because he says he's the son of God who's going to be seated at the right hand of God. You remember? The time will come when you'll see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of God's of God in power and glory. And then they ripped, then the high priest ripped the garment and said, this man's a blasphemer. So Jesus knows in advance, and Jesus here brings up the issue in front of all people to settle it once for all, to show their hypocrisy later on. They didn't have a reason to condemn him. Jesus says, if the Messiah is the son of David, why does David call him his Lord, saying in verse 44, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is it that he is his son? Now it's important here to, to realize Jesus is not denying that the Messiah is the son of David. That would be absurd in light of everything we've read in Matthew. Matthew has gone to uh, great lengths to prove that Jesus is the descendant of David and therefore the Messiah. So Jesus is not here saying that the Messiah isn't the son of David, but he's showing them something that's more important than that. He's showing them that the Messiah is not only the son of David, but the Lord of David. That the Messiah is David's son is true, but that understanding alone is inadequate. And it's the very inadequacy of understanding the greater thing which is the reason why they condemn Jesus as a blasphemer. A.B. Bruce wisely says, if they had begun with the lordship of the Messiah, it would have led them into the spiritual sphere and made them ready to accept as Christ one greater than David in the spiritual order, though totally lacking the conventional grandeur of royal persons. Okay? Jesus didn't look like King David. And so they rejected him. You're not the son of David. But if they had first accepted his lordship, his superiority in the spiritual order, they wouldn't have rejected him for not looking like David in the conventional sense. Verse 44 tells us a strange thing. That David calls him Lord. This is strange. Now, verse 44 when David says, the Lord says to my Lord, he's not explicitly speaking of divinity. Or at least that verse doesn't, it doesn't explicitly say divinity, but merely superiority. God says to my superior, sit at my right hand. 
and yet it's the superiority of the Messiah, what the superiority consists of, that shows he is divine. It's strange for a son to be called Lord by the Father. That's the challenge that Jesus gives. Why would he be superior if he's just simply his son and like him? They expected the Messiah to be like David, but not superior to David. Certainly God would use the Messiah in a greater way than David, but he'd be a man like David and a king like David. But it's maybe not explicit, but implicit, for his superiority implies his divinity. In what way is the Messiah superior to David? I'll give you three briefly. The Messiah is superior to David in his righteousness. David on his deathbed said, the one that is to rule Israel, the one who is to be king, must be righteous, and that's not me. David acknowledged that no man was righteous. David acknowledged that all were unrighteous. Paul quotes him in Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. And yet the one who is to rule must be righteous. And we expect the Messiah to come. And we expect the Messiah to rule in righteousness. The Messiah will be unlike David in that the Messiah will be righteous. The Messiah will be superior to David in that as king he will be righteous. And if he's going to be righteous, that implies divinity. For no one is righteous but God alone. And if the Messiah will be perfect, the Messiah will be divine. And the second way the Messiah is superior to David is that the Messiah in this psalm is called after the order of Melchizedek. David was a king, but he was not a priest. The Messiah will be a king, but he'll also be a priest. He'll be a kingly priest like Melchizedek was, after the order of Melchizedek, who was himself a kingly priest. Therefore, the Messiah is a priest, and he's a priest, and the book of Hebrews makes much of this. He's a priest in that through offering himself, he might make atonement for our sins and make us acceptable before God. If the Messiah is going to be a kingly priest who offers himself to God to make atonement for our sins, and in that way is superior to David, therefore he must be divine. And thirdly, in this verse, And again, the book of Hebrews makes much of this, that the Messiah, unlike David, will sit at the right hand of God. I challenge you to go do a concordant search of the the phrase, the right hand, right hand. And you'll see how much in the New Testament that's all over the epistles, all over Jesus' words. This was a very significant saying that Jesus brought up here that the apostles used over and over and over again. Because as the author of Hebrews points out, no human or angel has ever been given the privilege or the authority of sitting at the right hand of God. The Messiah is not only going to rule over Israel, but over all the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. He's going to rule over all rulers when he sits at the right hand of God in the heavens. Therefore, he's divine, as argues the author of Hebrews. That's one of the author of Hebrews' Arguments for the divinity of the Messiah is that he's sitting at the right hand of God, unlike David, ruling over everything and not just the local nation of Israel. What this means for us, brothers and sisters, is that God has undertaken for you, that God is the one who put on flesh and bones and he came down to save you 
from your sins. The Messiah is none other than God in the flesh. And he shows us how much God loves you. When you realize what God has done for you and how he's loved you and how he's atoned for your sins and how he's freed you, that's the key to the new covenant. That's the key to the kingdom of God. Knowing what God is like through Jesus. So in closing, if you know him, and if you've come to the understanding that God himself has loved you and has saved you from your sins, then today you have the key. Rejoice remembering that he saved you. And it's a daily thing. Daily fill your heart with love for God by simply remembering his love for you. Remember how free you are and that you don't have to do anything. When you get up in the morning, don't think about having to do anything. Think about what he has done for you and the beauty of who he is and the beauty of what he's done for you. And then tell others of his love. Preach the gospel so that they too can know him, so that they too can be free from condemnation and live a life of love toward God and neighbor in the kingdom of God. And one day when we die and stand before the Lord, it won't be about remembering anymore. We'll see him as he is. We'll know him without any hindrance and we will love him with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, all of our strength, and we'll love our neighbor as ourselves, not as a requirement, but as a response to seeing who he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of eternal life and the amazing love that you have for us. And thank you that it's your love that transforms us. We acknowledge that we don't have love on our own. Apart from you, we're nothing. But we thank you that your love is so vast and so deep and so amazing for us and that it can change us, change our homes and our worlds. Lord, please fill our homes with the knowledge of your love, we pray. Help us daily remember the gospel so that we can be filled with love as well. Thank you that you don't leave us in the dust longing for righteousness, but Lord, that you give us righteousness and thank you that you give us love. Thank you that it is all about love. We praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen.